0: Welcome to the F Word Conversations on Faith. I'm Pastor Matt Miofsky. Thank you so much for joining us. And I really mean that. Thank you to all of you who have been listening. Uh, it's hard to know in this weird pandemic world, you know, I preach to a camera in an empty sanctuary every week at my church, The Gathering. I do a radio show, podcast. And so when you reach out, it means a lot. So thank you to all of you. Tweet me or find me on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, you can always do that. Ask me questions. I'd love to hear from you and answer questions. And also, if you have an idea for something that you'd love to hear me tackle or talk about in an episode or in an interview, uh, please let me know. So I thought today, I have a fascinating interview coming up with a guy named Derek Webb. He's a singer-songwriter, part of a very popular uh, Christian contemporary band called Kademan's Call. But I was, you know, thinking about interviewing him and it reminded me of kind of my own time in college as a Christian. And I haven't shared this with a lot of you, but I went to a school called Washington university here in St. Louis. I did not major in religion. I was a math major. I studied theoretical math. I played football. I grew up in church, but I wouldn't say that I, you know, was overly religious. I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life and I got involved in uh, a, a ministry through the university called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. A lot of you have heard about that. It was a campus ministry. And there were several of these campus ministries. This was, by the way, like the mid-90s. And um, so I got involved in, in one of them. And on the one hand, it was an awesome experience for me. I, I got to meet some other people who had similar beliefs. I, I learned a lot about my faith. I learned I wasn't weird just because I kind of believed some of this stuff. I was at a university, and I love Washington University, but you know, it was a pretty secular place. So I had a a place where I could talk about spirituality and, and all that was good. But there was also this really difficult side of that campus ministry and a lot of campus ministries, especially at this time in the nineties. And, and it was this, that so often these campus ministries saw themselves as really a protection for Christians. I mean, the way they often saw the world or college is like, you know, hey, we have these Christians, they're coming to this big school, uh, a seat of liberalism and debauchery and who knows what, and we have to make sure to keep their faith. So we're going to start these groups where we can uh, make sure to warn them about all the things that are going on out there to strengthen their belief Uh, and, and that was so often how these campus ministries saw themselves. And a lot of it was about fear, fear that you were going to lose your faith at a big university, fear that some professor was going to teach you something that, you know, convinced you that God wasn't real fear that you were going to lose your morality and go out and drink and have sex and do all these kinds of things. And so these were like, you know, bastions, safety, a refuge from, you know, all the sins of the world. And the problem with As a young person, you know, I was 17 when I went to college, 18, 19 years old. There's so much about life and faith that you're trying to figure out. I mean, you're trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to figure out what you believe. You're trying to figure out how to behave and how to act. And all of us make mistakes along the way. Maybe for the first time, you're beginning to question things that your parents had taught you or things that your church had taught you or things that you had learned. And and so it's a time of exploration of of wondering, of mistake making, of figuring things out. And what I found at least is that these campus ministries and I would say church more generally didn't make a lot of space for for those kinds of things. That, you know, there wasn't a lot of space, for example, if you were in college and you went out on Friday night and did something really stupid and had a rough night and some friends saw you, um, It it wasn't as if uh, a campus ministry was a place where you could sort of process that and talk about it. It was a place where oftentimes you were made to feel pretty shameful about it. Or sometimes churches or campus ministries, I mean, it wasn't a place where if you heard something in a class or, you know, read something in in a book that caused you to maybe to question some of your faith, it wasn't like you could necessarily go to the church or go to a campus ministry and say, hey, I'm really struggling. I don't know if, you know, the, Bible is real, or if I believe it word for word, that often w- wasn't met with like understanding. And yeah, you're not the first one to wonder that, but it it was often met with judgment or criticism. You know, how could you, how could you do something like that? Or how could you question this? And I certainly experienced, you know, some element of that. And looking back on it, I realized at least for me and for so many others, The way in which these campus ministries, and and I think the church more generally, um, is often more afraid of the messiness of people's lives or the questions that people have or the doubts that people have. We're more afraid of of that than we ought to be. Instead of seeing, you know, people as people, and all these things as opportunities to help people to process and to grow and to learn and to work through doubts and to, to learn how to make mistakes, we so often see these things as dangers, fundamental dangers. And I have to say that it kind of set me on a, a course of, I'm a believer, I'm of course a Christian, I'm a pastor, I started a church, but you know the church I started, the gathering here in St. Louis, You know when we started it, I wanted it to be different. I did not want it to be a place where we expected you to have it all figured out when you walked in the door. I didn't want it to be a place where if you made a mistake or if you sinned or if you had something that, that we were going to hammer you and, and and want you to feel shame because we, we thought it was dangerous. I mean, I wanted it to be a place where people could be honest about their lives could find forgiveness or redemption. I wanted it to be a place where you could come in and be a total skeptic and say, I don't know that I believe this stuff, and it's okay. That's what we're here for. And so that's really what I set out to do is I wanted to start a church that uh, that welcomed people that didn't have their lives all together, that didn't know exactly what they believed, that had some doubts, that maybe had some some really rough spots in life and and in a lot of ways, that's what the gathering is today. I mean, it's a community of people. Some are really certain about their beliefs; others aren't. Some are living, you know, very kind of upstanding lives, lives of virtue, things that you would look up to. And other people are kind of living pretty messy lives. Uh, some people um, are really certain about their relationship with God, and other people just. Wonder about that, or they feel like God's far away. Some people have a lot of answers. Some people have a lot of questions, and I love that. I think that's what the church ought to be. And and I I share all this in, in part to prepare us for our next guest, but also because I suspect there's a lot of you listening that at some point in the past have been made to feel like like the church or a Christian community isn't for you because you don't have your life together, because you have doubts, because you have questions, because you say things that, you know, you're not supposed to say maybe in church. And, and I just want you to know that, um, that is not true. That the times that, that churches get scared of, of people and, you know, the dangers of, of allowing certain things in or certain ideas in, I mean, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is the kind of person who welcomed to him, everyone and met people where they were and that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. It's the kind of church we try to start at the gathering. And uh, and so I just want you to know that you're not alone in that. My next guest after the break is Derek Webb. As I said before, Derek was a, a really popular singer-songwriter, kind of in this Christian subculture that I described right around the time in the mid-90s and 2000s. And and yet over the course of his his life and career, he started to say and do things that maybe the Christian establishment didn't love. And and we're going to get to hear kind of his story, how he reacted uh, to that and what I think it has to offer to all of us. And so I uh, hope you'll stick around. It's, it's going to be a great conversation right after the break. This is the F Word Conversations on Faith. I'm Pastor Matt Miofsky, and you are listening to The Big 550 KTRS.
1: It's no secret that over the past year, many of us have struggled emotionally, socially, financially, and spiritually. Not being able to be together in person has only added to the sense of disconnection. For all these reasons, it is fitting that Easter is to be the beginning of a new day and the dawning of a new journey for us and our church. You can find out all the details at gatheringnow.org. At The Gathering, we celebrate big. Easter is a time to witness a God who brings something new from something old, hope from despair, and life from death. Our Easter service on April 4th will be a powerful online worship experience that will include music, testimony, a message of hope, and a chance to participate in a Zoom communion. Simply visit GatheringNow.org to find more details about this special online worship experience, and don't forget to invite your friends and family to join you. Everyone is welcome and Easter is just the beginning, not only because it will be a much-needed and hopeful celebration of the risen Jesus, but the following Sunday, April 11th, is also the relaunch of in-person worship at all three of our sites. Again, visit gatheringnow.org for all the welcome back information and how to register to attend. If you participate at the gathering from afar, our online worship will continue to remain a robust and meaningful worship option. However you join us, we look forward to meeting you soon at gatheringnow.org.
0: Welcome back to the F Word Conversations on Faith. I'm your host, Pastor Matt Miafsky, and a lot of us have a complicated relationship with faith, and my guest today is no different. Singer, songwriter, leader of widely popular early Christian contemporary band, Derek Webb spent much time submersed in the Christian subculture of the 90s and 2000s. But over time, and as he pursued a solo career, his songs drifted outside the norms of what Christian labels wanted him to be talking about. As that happened, his own relationship with faith began to be strained. He eventually stopped identifying with it altogether. And his story, I think, is important. It resonates with so many who find their relationship to Christianity Uh, complicated. So Derek, welcome to the pod and the show. Thank you so much for talking with me today.
2: It's a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So I want to start with you kind of growing up. I think about this a lot. You know, most of us don't choose faith initially. Mm -hmm. We're raised in it. And so Mm -hmm. was faith something you were raised in? Talk a little bit about growing. Did you grow up in the church?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Well, so I was, I mean, I, I was, I was born And came up in uh, all my formative years in the South, in uh, Tennessee, and born in Memphis, and then spent some time in Texas as well. But uh, it was definitely the presumed language um, of kind of understanding what was happening in the universe as I was coming up. That was kind of the, the, as I think it is for a lot of people, I think the language of God and faith. And, and specifically, uniquely Christian evangelical faith, Jesus. Um, it is. It's kind of the default language for a lot of people who grew up uh, in the West and, definitely, and specifically in the South uh, side of America. And I grew up with that. My parents were not especially devout. Uh, my mom grew up um, Baptist. My dad grew up Catholic, so they raised us Methodist as a compromise. And, but I don't think either of them had like a huge investment in it for the most part. And my brother, um, it kind of took hold of him he, uh, when he was in and probably, you know, when he was pretty young, um, and because we, we were raised going to church. And so we were there, you know, doing all the youth group activities, probably just to keep us out of trouble and then definitely going to church beyond just holidays. And, um, but it really took hold on my, on my brother, and then he was obviously such a big influence on me, my older brother, um, that it, uh, you know, I kind of followed him through that. And um, and and there's some specifics to kind of how I got mixed up with my own kind of experience of conversion, so to speak. And then and then started to kind of practice it more individually. But um, what's interesting is my brother and I kind of wound up having an influence on my parents, and my parents kind of came into a more. Serious relationship to faith, as it were, as a result of us kind of talk, telling them our stories of yeah. what, um, or what we were going through. And so, um, but that's kind of how it was, you know. And um, Wait, are you telling me yeah. you grew
0: up in a Methodist church?
2: I did. I grew up United Methodist.
0: I'm a United Methodist pastor. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. This is full circle, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, not to dive too deep, but, you know, did you have your kind of conversion? To what maybe people would call a more evangelical version of the faith was this high school, college. I mean, was that kind of the period? Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it was high school, uh, kind of mid high school, um, and it was actually not through the church we were going through. I, I did go through, as any kid does in the United Methodist Church. I went through confirmation and and you know kind of did my bit up in front of the church and probably received the Bible and the whole thing and went through the confirmation classes and and checked all those boxes, but I wouldn't have considered at that point myself to be in any kind of a relationship to faith. Um, And so it wasn't actually until midway through high school um, that I found myself in um, the uh, young life uh, organization Mm -hmm. and which is kind of a, you know, a high uh, at least in Texas, it was mainly a high school parachurch organization and, Uh, And I think that you know, Young Life is non-denominational. I think they would describe themselves as kind of the church's unpaid bills in terms of um, trying to, you know, um, really more deeply engage specifically high school kids. And so, and honestly, there was just a really tremendous uh, Young Life leader in uh, in that part of Houston at that time, and he was just a really tremendous guy. And um, and so uh, my and I wound up going to like a camp over the summer in Colorado and it was really through young life. And then most of the remainder of my high school uh, faith experience was through young life. And it really didn't ever, at least during that season, connect itself to a church, a local church. Yeah. Um,
0: I'm glad you went into that because I think that's similar for a lot of, uh, I know, I know I was yeah. raised in the church, but it didn't click until I got, I got involved in Fellowship of Christian Athletes. That was sort of the yeah. the same thing. It ignited my faith as a high schooler. And, and this was, you know, you and I are similar ages in the nineties when the sort of evangelical Christian even parachurch subculture was really strong. And, um, sure. I mean, I could talk about that forever, but at a fairly young age, yeah. in college, you joined a band Cademan's call. That's how a lot of yeah. people know about you. Uh, and suddenly you were thrust to sort of the, the front of, of this subculture. Talk a mm-hmm. little bit about the band, maybe for those who don't know about sure. it, how your presence grew and really like, what was it like for you to suddenly be kind of a evangelical <laughs> Christian celebrity?
2: Right. Um, well, yeah. So it was like late. It, what What would have been, uh, and, you, and you'll hear, you'll hear my, my, my sweet dog barking uh, downstairs. Occasionally I'm yeah, here no at my problem. house in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, she, she's keeping me very safe though. I assure you during, uh, during our interview, but um, yeah. So it was like, right. As I was out of getting out of high school um, it was actually would have been the first semester of my what would have been my college, uh, first year of college. And this would, this would have been like 92. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually wound up, I, I, I did not go to college and, and, uh, I, that was just not in the cards at any point for me. I barely got out of high school. I did not have any, I mean, I've been playing music since I was seven years old. It's the only thing I've really ever been able to do. So there wasn't really anything for me to study. Um, cause I, I would have been just as well off studying Japanese as music because I can read both equally, which is not at <laughs> all. And, uh, so it wouldn't have benefited me really. Um, I just wanted to jump out, um, into the school of hard knocks and, uh, learn the trade. So a friend from high school that I was high school with had just started going to college in Texas with uh, a guy named uh, Cliff Young and Cliff, uh, was, uh, a, a musician and he, um, and and a really ambitious, kind of charismatic dude. His dad was the pastor of a mega church in Houston called Second Baptist Church, Ed Young. And um, so Cliff met this guy, Aaron Tate, who was my buddy from high school. Aaron was a great songwriter, but not an ambitious musician. Cliff was a very ambitious musician and not a songwriter. So that was kind of like the chocolate and peanut butter. They they kind of, you know, they, they met and then Cliff heard these amazing songs that Aaron was writing in college there and Cliff immediately wanted to start a band with him. Aaron didn't want to, and so he said, well, do you mind if I start a band and play your songs because they're so good, and they Mm -hmm. really were. And so Aaron said, sure, and Cliff said, great. Do you know any guitar players? And so he just needed him for everything. So Aaron introduced me to Cliff, and we kind of started uh, Cademan's at that point. And, um, And for the first few years, we were playing primarily Aaron's songs, and then I started to write as well, and by the time um, we put our first major label record out, which we put out a couple of in- independent records, but that uh, did, did pretty well down in Texas. But um, by probably, I don't know what it was, 94, 95, we put our first indie record out, I was writing about half of the song. And, um, and yeah, we, we were a college band. I mean, we, that was, and that was all the ambition we had. We were, yeah, we, we were essentially young, kind of uh, progressive-minded Christians who were looking for our stories to be reflected back to us in culture somewhere. And we could not find it. That typically is where the church kind of drops off for for people. There's a lot of young kids and youth in high school. There's a lot of young adult and married and beyond, but there's this big gap in the college zone where that's where, that's why a lot of parachurch organizations usually come up and, and, uh, and pick it up for a few years there, because the church, at least at that point, wasn't doing a lot for college age kids. And so, and especially on Christian radio, anywhere we were finding, no one was putting language to the experience we were having or the practice that we were doing of of spirituality or faith at that point. And we were looking for it, couldn't find it. And we essentially wanted to be the indigo guys. You know, we wanted to like play really good, intense folk rock music, but from that perspective that we had, and we couldn't find that anywhere. So we were just trying to make, the music that we were looking for and so that's what we did um we we played a lot of colleges that was our main thing we toured all over just played colleges for many years all over texas and regionally and then eventually much further out and then we got signed to a record deal warner brothers um signed us a handful of years later and they wound up putting us kind of on christian radio um and out into the christian marketplace which is not where we envisioned ourselves um and uh but then that kind of propelled us into a different level of success and in front of a different audience which is where we ultimately you know and so that's why the band got labeled as a christian music band although that's not at all how we ever saw that's interesting
0: and i always i always have to say full disclosure you know i was a senior in high school in 95 freshman in college in the fall of 95 so this was like exactly you know (laughs) what what you were doing exactly matched kind of where i was in life and where you know that's how i first got you know, into your music was it's, it did, it spoke to that, to something that the church wasn't speaking to at the time. Um, the growth and the success of Cadenman's call had to come with kind of pluses and minuses. Hmm. I mean, you know, what was it, what was exciting and positive and maybe what was difficult about suddenly getting on the radio and becoming, you know, really popular?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't think I understood it or realized it at the time. And so I'll answer that question from my perspective as a 46 year old and not please. as a 22 as year old, because I don't think I would have understood even what it was. But the best parts of it, looking back now, mm-hmm. were the experience I was having with these new friends that I had just found and, and immediately and deeply connected with. And this incredible experience and adventure that we were able to go on together and that and because it and it was really kind of a perfect circumstance and perfect, you know, it was a culmination of a lot of things at that time that really just set us up to do really well. And and um, we, we had a lot of, uh, you know, when we, we 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 certainly had the minimum viable talent to do it. And we have had when we had initially had Aaron Pate's songs, which were amazing. And then eventually some of mine. But um, so we did have that. But we had so many advantages um we had you know cliff's dad being the pastor of this huge church in texas which had a recording studio in it and in the early mid 90s it was cost prohibited it was almost impossible to record your own music and be able to put it out because hardly anybody could get access to recording studios because it was so expensive and there were so few of them around and uh, and yet we were able to go into the church's recording studio and make our first few indie records mm-hmm. and that propelled us forward so it's that's one of us that we, we you know we were in texas where we Within a handful of hours, there are dozens and dozens of colleges, so we could not even leave the state and tour for years and get a lot of momentum going. And so we did really have some key advantages at that point, mainly, as I said, the experience of doing this and building this thing and kind of riding the wave of the success of it with my friends, looking back, those memories of doing that with those people, that's the best part. The most complicated part uh, and maybe the most concerning part for me looking back um, and, as, a, as a 40-something to a 20-something that I was at the time is the position that the kind of the Christian music culture and world will, will put you in, um, at, like kind of unvetted, like with no... Like we didn't we were just young kids and we mm-hmm. and and I, have, I was barely out of high school. I didn't have any kind of uh, training or or real education in the Bible other than, you know, kind of I, I, you know um, being real a real contrarian and having kind of a chip on my shoulder about my lack of education. Like, I mean, I, I definitely was was uh, poring over theology books and really loving to learn all of that stuff at that time, along with all my friends and cadens. But, you know, you find yourself writing the soundtrack to people's kind of spiritual journeys. And I was just dramatically underqualified to be doing that at that time. So like the words that we were writing with very little education or oversight uh, or accountability were being put on the radio (laughs) and and, and and under a category, I've often said that, that the term Christian, when applied to anything other than a human being, is a marketing term.
1: Yeah. And
2: that's all that it is. And it can't mean when applied to anything other than a human being, what it means when you use it to talk about Christian people. There is no such thing as Christian music, Christian radio, Christian education, Christian breath mints, Christian retail stores. There's no such thing because those things cannot be inherently right, true, good, beautiful. Redeemed, saved, set apart—they're just things that have been rubber stamped with the category of Christian, because some group of people decided these are things that Christians are probably going to be trying to find out in culture. We should rubber stamp them so they can find them more easily. That's what. So marketing terms are not bad; they're they're really helpful. But with the word Christian and Christian radio, um, it's like it, they're almost selling security—you uh, know, against fear. It's like. Yeah. They're they're selling the idea that every come into this store and everything here in in our Christian retail store is right, true, good, and beautiful. It is pre vetted for your spiritual yes. benefit, and that was kind of so. When you're being advertised on Christian radio, as I remember the, the radio station KSBJ in Houston, their big billboard said God listens, and I know what they meant by that. It's a it's a play on words because I mean I think they were maybe trying to say you know God listens if you call out and pray, but what they seemed to always say to everybody was, "God listens." Like he listens to our radio station. God, yeah. in case we say, the God, God, God approved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I and, think, and, and, and yeah, and like things like "safe for the whole family," you know, was always their tagline. And I remember thinking that was terrifying, <laughs> realizing the songs we were writing and the little bit of intention at times that we were putting into it, and other songs that we were hearing uh, coming out of those channels that seemed to be really misunderstanding the 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 condition of man, the character of God, and and yet he, here we all were being put up on pedestals as though we had some authoritative word that we were really you know uh, unqualified, and that was concerning. Looking mm. back, you know, yeah,
0: well, and thanks for talking about that because I don't think people people who didn't were not a part of that. You know, it's hard to to understand how during that period it was like this trend in Christianity to sort of like, let's look at everything the world is doing and let's just do a Christian version of it and we'll call it Christian. And and this is a way of making sure it was sort of this fear that I think the church had that as young people go to college, like the the world is going to take away their faith. And so in order for us to preserve faith in them, we have to create almost a parallel, you know, universe where everything is Christian oriented. So you go to a rock concert, but there's going to be Christian rock concerts and there's music and, but it's Christian music. There's bookstores still, but they're Christian bookstores. And
2: well, it's certainly easier to teach, um, uh, uh, teach people how to uh, watch for and follow Arbitrary marketing categories than it is to teach people how to discern and think for themselves. Yeah, Um, it's much easier.
0: But it strikes me as you know part of what made I think Kidman's call powerful is you you were a person you were writing for people. Going through this spiritual formation while you yourself were going through it. I well, mean, right, and, 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 that, and so there's there a really you know, there's a power to that, but then at the same time you were being put under a microscope. Sometimes as like a, expected to be an authority sometimes on on something. Well, that, and
2: well, and the trouble is, and that's a, that's a great way to put it, is that like we we were documenting what we were going through in real time, and that was being put out in the marketplace and on the radio. But the thing is. When you're doing that, I think that's a great way to make art, but I think that's a dangerous way um, is, uh, to distribute something being advertised as uh, spiritually beneficial yeah. and pre vetted. Because um, you know the, the the whole when it comes to art making, that's that's great. It's a great vulnerable way to make art, but um, you realize over time, and I certainly have many times, how many times you're wrong, and you're you're, you're you're making a thing Mm -hmm. and it's from the perspective that you have at that time. And then later you figure out how, how totally upside down and backwards you had it. And, and you, so you continue making art and you document the change of mind and you document and you come and you say, Oh, I was wrong about that. On the other hand, or or maybe I was, and let me reconsider. And then you make some art about maybe coming back around, but (laughs) you continue to do it. The problem is you're snapshotted and put on the radio and that seems like, and then it kind of lives on forever. Yeah. And it, and it seems as though that has some kind of power that it really doesn't have,
0: you know? Well, so let me move, this kind of sets up, I think some of what became, you know, attention that, you know, in 2003, you embarked on a solo career. Cayman's call wasn't over, but you, you were branching out in solo career and as a solo artist, you continue to do this, to create art sort of representing where you were, your relationship, church and faith. And there started to be some controversies with Christian labels that found some, maybe some of what you had to say troubling, or maybe it didn't fit anymore, what they thought. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what, what was it that caused some early tensions between you and maybe your, your label at the time, or this, uh, you know, these radio stations that had previously stamped you as certified s- seemed to suddenly have some concerns.
2: Right. Well, so as you would imagine, you spend uh, you know 10 years um, uh, playing music and, and, and touring in and out of big Christian music festivals and churches and Christian colleges, and you, you do that for long enough, and you find that you have a lot of material built up of things that seem like they're worth talking about and things that... Uh, you know, the con- things that are concerning and, and maybe things that are worth talking about that no one is really talking about. And that's kind of where I found myself after about 10 years. And um, and I uh, started to write some songs and it was certainly, um, there's a story that I don't know if we have time for today, but there the, the, the were there were a few things that really were the catalyst and really kind of lift the fuse on me Realizing I needed to, I mean, perilous as it is to kind of bite and gnaw on the hands that are feeding you, I realized like, oh, there's some things here. If I really care about this, I really care about this institution and this idea and this movement and this culture and this, if I really care about it, um, then I should care enough to uh, uh, come and put a mirror up in front of it. If I think there are important ways that we're failing that are hurting us, and, and and always with myself primarily in the crosshairs, yeah. And so, so as I started to as I realized some of that, I, I started writing songs that the band were less and less comfortable with, and I understood this. I, I because we had spent ten years to build a thing in a platform, yeah. Um, that you know, and, and part of that was not to take these risks to go and uh, you know, for the, for some of this new material, but I felt strongly about it. The band felt strongly about the songs I was writing at that time and was very, what encouraged me to, you know, to, to pursue that and to record those songs and to, and to find places to perform those songs, just not on stage as a cadence call. And mm-hmm. so what I realized is I can't do both. Well, a uh, cadence was a very demanding schedule and, um, and you know, I, I, realized, you know, I think maybe it's time for me to, that it felt important enough to me. Can, can you to, give
0: people an idea of what some of those early tensions were for you or w- things that you wanted to shine a light on? Like were there specific?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, so I think that, the, you know, the, I, I'll, I'll say this as briefly as I can. I think I think one of the early catalysts was realizing how as a culture, as a community, Um, I'll say because it's the way – it was my perspective at that time, so I'll frame it uh, this way, that we so easily gave in to anyone trying to manipulate us into buying things or voting for people. Um, It was just so easy to find that language that we would pick up on and really have our ears tickled by and then follow and kind of do whatever uh, people – kind of wanted in many situations and and um i later in my solo career wrote about that specifically when it came to the confusion between spirituality and nationalism and how Mm -hmm. they are equated especially in the west with each other and how confusing that can be for people and how they they really put those things together and they really must be divided um and detached from each other and considered equally but separately and but early and the thing that really propelled me out of cabins into my solo career was and this is going to sound crazy but it was the book, The Prayer of Jabez. Um, for some of, for anybody who goes back this far, you might recall this book, uh, The Prayer of Jabez, which was written by a guy named Bruce Wilkinson. And he was a great Bible teacher and walked through the Bible. He was a, you know, and, and um, he had written this little book that I don't think he thought was, was probably going to do all that much. It was like a little, small yeah. little coffee table book. And, but the point is, it, it harkened back to something that the church has fallen prey to many, many times before and has even since. And that is uh, the idea that um, without regard to faith and without regard to really anything, um, you can make God kind of do what you want and bless you materially. Yeah, Um, And you can kind of, because on the book itself, it said, this is a prayer that God must answer. He can't not answer this prayer. And it took a obscure one line from the old Testament, a guy who we don't know anything about. We don't, know specifically what he was praying for we don't know if he prayed the prayer more than one time or we have no idea what how god answered him or if he answered him and yet bruce had kind of extrapolated it into this little formula that if you pray this prayer every day for 30 days god must answer you and he will expand your territory and bless you and give you material things that's what the book said yeah. and when i saw it was a specific um uh conference that caveman's was at and we performed right after Bruce Wilkinson got up and spoke about this book, and mm. it had sold already 10 million copies probably at that point. It was a huge phenomenon. All these Christian bookstores um, couldn't resist it because it was selling so well. So they had um, taken in all this additional merchandising the, the Prayer Jabez Bible, the Prayer Jabez Study Journal, the Prayer Jabez uh, album oh, compilations. You could get candles, the Prairie...
0: candles, yeah. It was everything.
2: It was everything. everything. And that's yeah. what happens when something gets really big, and I understand that. Um, it's great marketing. It just wasn't especially, it was especially complicated when, as we've already said, people are coming into the store with the idea that everything beyond these doors is pre-vetted for your spiritual nourishment. It's right, true, good, and beautiful. And come on in and, and consume with, without discernment, because the, everything here is, is, is quote, Christian. And so he got up um, at this, this event we were playing in front of a, a room of several thousand people who uh, their job was to stock the stores of every Christian retail store in America. These were all the buyers for all the Christian retail stores of all the different brands in America. And he got up. He was a big speaker of the night, of course, because he had such a big hit book. And, and I went into it open-minded. I want to hear what he has to say. By the end of it, I was so disheartened to hear kind of what the promises he was making on God's behalf on, in this book were the fact that it got so popular. But then he kind of did an altar call and said, if you want to commit to praying the prayer every day for 30 days, and you want to, the Jabez Challenge, he called it, if you want to take the Jabez Challenge, then I want you to come up here. I'm going to pray for you that you can faithfully pray the prayer every day, 30 days. And this time next year, I cannot wait to hear your stories of the huge, God's going to extend, expand your territory. You're going to have to buy the the store next door, your revenue is going to go up. Your, your store is going to get bigger. This is going to happen. God must do this if you do this. And I expected, these are smart people. They put Bibles on yeah. shelves for peace sake. And the whole place weeping arm in arm came up to the front, like a Billy Graham crusade and wanted him to pray for them. And they said they were going to, you know, and it was this big emotional moment. Yeah. And then Cademans had to get up. Yeah. And so literally that night, After that experience, I went back to the hotel. I think in Atlanta, Georgia, and I wrote a song called "Wedding Dress." And "Wedding Dress" was a song just about how easily we give in to people who are trying to sell us things that we are getting for free. um, When it comes to God's promises, to you know, uh, as Romans says, you know, those who, uh, you know, who are, uh, you know, to His glory and to their good, the, the people who He loves and. And yet here's a guy saying, oh, no, 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 there's more. There's more you have to do to get the whole measure and yeah. the full blessing and the whole deal. And it really offended me. But then I quickly realized all the ways that I do that. That might not have been my particular brand, but um, I do it in all my own ways. And um, so I turn it into a confession. I wrote that song. The band loved it and wouldn't play it. Yeah. And that's kind of what lifts the fuse on me. Suddenly finding my way, surprisingly, into
0: a solo career. (laughs) Yeah, Thanks for sharing that story. And I mean, there's so much here I want to talk about, but I I want to move forward because as time passed, as your solo efforts progressed, your relationship to Christianity became even more complicated until, and I want you to put this in your own words, until eventually you no longer claimed it. Can you talk about your eventual, I don't know if you would call it a rejection of Christianity, a leaving but sure. you you decided to to leave. Why and and how did you come to this decision? Why was it the best choice for you?
2: Well, I mean, it's definitely a long story, um, but it's not that complicated. I mean, I I think um, it's really hard to discern uh, the the strength of the boat you're in while you're in it. Um, and you are highly incentivized to believe it can hold you while you're in it because you don't have any other option. Um, It's not until, it's really hard to get any perspective uh, on it. Um, And I think that it's really easy to go for a long time and kind of not do any audit of the words that you use and the ideas that you have about the way the world works. And, and, And it very seldom gets really tested. Like, Um, the both theological beliefs and the practice of church and kind of going to church and being in in a church circle, it very seldom gets tested. And I have a lot of friends who have told me, and this was my experience too, um, this was not the reason that I ultimately decided to not identify as a Christian anymore, but um, I have a lot of friends who felt as though years and years and years and decades of going to church was kind of a dress rehearsal. The church loves to talk about how you know like we want to confess to each other we want to you know and, and we want to be a safe place for sinners and for people mm-hmm. to come and confess the things they've done and radical confession and you know and they love that in the hypothetical mm-hmm. but when you start to actually grapple with and deal with and struggle with things um, that are complex in real time um, they start to distance and and move away and eventually withhold fellowship from you until you can sort it out um and you know jesus reputation was ruined um spending his life with people who were extremely complex people to love
1: yeah
2: Um, and i think the church that's one of the things i'm not sure the church does as well as it could do Um, and you know so i think a lot of people and a lot of my friends felt as though all this dress rehearsal when it came showtime everybody kind of bailed um and people were not there now my, my buddy Dave Bazan, who's a, a great songwriter and great uh, faithful witness to the ups and downs of, uh, you know, spiritual grappling, um, has, you know, he, he, uh, he, he said, got this great quote where he says that um, Christians failing to practice Christianity well is not a good reason to not be a Christian. No. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's not a good reason. Yeah. People not practicing a world view well is not a good reason to leave it. Because um, you have to expect, especially if it's a worldview uh, that's based on people being sinners and not and and being screw up, they're probably going to screw up the practice of the, of that worldview just like everything else. Yeah. And so you can't blame. Um, but for me, I think I have this opportunity. I, I I've often said that failure is the most important thing that you are doing all the time. It's where you learn everything. And so for me. I had a really strong dose of failure um, about, you know, five or six or seven years ago in my personal life, and when that happened, it kind of it's like hitting that, that boat analogy from before, and not being able to see and get a real perspective on the boat you're in while you're in it. Um, that's holding you up out of the water. It's like you hit a big wave and you get thrown from the boat, and and for just a split second. You can look down and you can see that thing and you can see what it is you've been in all this time. And you can use that time during that season of failure to kind of get a read on that boat and decide, is that a boat even? Is that what I've been in all this time? Now that I'm up here in the air thrown from it. um, And I'm, you know, in a minute I'm coming back down and I'm going to have to make a decision. Do I get back in that boat? Is that even a boat? That thing's a two by four. I can't, how do I survive this long on that? It's perilous, Or maybe I don't need a boat at all. I could just be in the water. Is that really, maybe the water's not even that deep. And maybe I just was convinced that I was in danger and had to get on this boat. And and I'm not trying to get too far into metaphors here, but it's helpful, I think, sometimes to have language. And I think while I was up in that free fall, it just gave me a chance to really examine objectively some things. And I made a decision that when it comes to invisible and unknowable things. So invisible like God and mm-hmm. unknowable like the future. Um, invisible, unknowable things like God in the future. When it comes to things like that, I feel like uncertainty is a really good way to go. Uh, and, and I don't think that's even the enemy of faith. I think that's the prerequisite of faith, uncertainty. And I found myself at the end of a hard season just permanently uncertain about invisible, unknowable things. Mm-hmm. And I was not comfortable with my presumptions about those things anymore. And that's kind of where I am now. And I don't want to overstate it by saying I'm, I'm closed off or, or in any way, uh, you know, um, I, I'm, be- I'm extremely open to the, the narrative of how the world works, um, being that evangelical Christian narrative that I grew up with. I'm open to that still being true. Mm-hmm. I'm just not per- necessarily persuaded that, it, that it's either true or necessary or, or, or persuasive. But more more than anything, I'm just permanently uncertain about it. Yeah. And so rather than having beliefs at this point in my life, because the word belief is so heavy. And I think it brings with it a lot of conclusion uh, bias um, and confirmation bias. It brings with it a lot of anxiety when you come into information that seems contrary to the worldview that you have and the belief you have. The language I like nowadays is I don't have beliefs anymore. And I may never have beliefs again. Here's what I have. I have hypotheses that I am testing in real time. And so, for instance, like, there is a God. He is both good and powerful. He made all things. Uh, I am out of relationship with him, but he's a made a, a way for me to be restored. That's a hypothesis. That's a hypothesis. And and and, I, and so let's test it. And let's see how it feels. Let's see if it rings true. And that's kind of along with, with any other. Um, and let's see what really rings true uh, over time. Um, and that's kind of, for me become a comfortable way to proceed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like any future experience I'm going to have of spirituality is going to have to happen this way. It's going to have to be something um, that I test in real time all the time um, and move forward with, you know, and I, and I think this, and ironically it feels like following the spirit. It feels less like driving on the paved road with the, 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 theological, Uh, guardrails on both sides and more like kind of wandering across the road and following the spirit, which is a less predictable, more mysterious thing. And that's kind of where I am.
0: Yeah. That makes so much sense. And I, there's so many things to explore here and I know we're running out of time, but it kind of speaks to, I think, one of my own struggles with the church and evangelical Christianity as I experienced it is it left so little room for development and yeah. doubt and exploration. Yeah. It because it, especially it,
2: for a mystical Middle Eastern religion, you'd think it would be there would be a yeah. lot more mystery. And, <laughs> and I think it it's not
0: unrelated to what we were talking about earlier about what evangelical Christianity saw as its sort of project for people to provide you know a mm. safe haven. And doubt mm. is often not safe because it opens up other possibilities that could lead people to, um, places outside the faith. So I, I, you know, I'm glad you shared that, but it also sounds to me like, you know, I could imagine some evangelical Christians like, Oh, Derek Webb's gone, you know, atheist or ex Christian. But what you're talking about sounds a little bit more complex than that and not as certain as atheism, but, but maybe rather an agnosticism or an openness or an exploration that I think actually resonates with me as a Christian pastor. So I just sort of wanted to right. see if I had you correct, that it sounds like you're you're not making any claims of certainty in the opposite direction. You're just in kind of a, a, a wide open space, uh, maybe more so than before.
2: Absolutely. The last thing I would ever want to do is flip to some reverse fundamentalism mm-hmm. and say that I'm sure— I am certain that this and this and this are not true because I'm not. How could I possibly be? What did I say? The invisible, unknowable things, I think a healthy approach to, to those things has got to be some uncertainty. You have to carry that with you. If anything, as I said, it's not the enemy of faith. It requires faith. It's the prerequisite of faith. And so for me, um, it feels like a, I, and, and I'm willing to own that I've just been approaching this whole thing wrong. I was looking at it. Wanting, you know, uh, uh, I, I was looking for a for a theological grid that I could work on like a Harley um, and tinker with and be certain about and then fight with people about, you know, like I was looking for to have all my theological ducks in a row. And what I needed was some permanent uncertainty, something that would yes. keep me close to the water and or the fire or whatever the analogy is that you want to use that real spark of a thing where there's something going on that you can't quite, you can discern, but can't see. And like, I want to be close to that and I want to follow that and I want to find that. And so I think the, and, and I think that, um, what's so much more important that I'm realizing, you know, uh, as I go here is it's not, I I used to be so obsessed with the answers and having the answers and knowing the answers. And now I think what's more important by a long shot in terms of a, you know, a, a metric by which to measure where you are and how you are with all this is not the answers, but the questions. Yeah. It's the questions that are important. I'm not trying to be wishy-washy. I'm not trying to say that uh, there's no objective truth or that truth doesn't matter. But uh, what I'm trying to say is the emphasis and the guidance I think should really come more from, am I asking the right questions? I think that that's where the church has gotten itself into trouble so many times is when it's obsessed with and asking the wrong questions when there are better questions um to be asking and i can and i I can think of a hundred examples but uh you know and so for me personally that's that's kind of the road that i'm on i'm trying to focus on what are the right questions and let me see where that takes me um yeah
0: it's a powerful testimony Derek. and i you don't need me to say this to you but as a as a Christian guy, a pastor who connected with you back in the nineties, I connect with what you're saying now. And I think that you continue to shape people with your doubts and questions, because this is also something Christianity, um, when it's at its best, ought to embrace and too often hasn't. And so uh, today I'm really reminded uh, of the work we need to do internally in the faith to make sure that we give room and space for doubt and questions and, mm. and I'm really grateful just for your willingness to share your story and, and your honesty about your own uh, journey. And I, I, you still sound like a faithful person to me and I, and that's not meant to put you in a box. I, it just, it, it sounds oh, like the no, I, kind of I, faith I, I hope more of us are willing to have.
2: Well, I, I thank I mean, I thank you. That's encouraging to me because that is exactly where I want to be. You know, I want to, I want to be awake to it. I want to be in pursuit of it. Uh, I want to see it if it's seeable, hear it if it's hearable, you know, I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think I was just, and again, I'll own this. I think for many years, I was kind of in this in this this slumber, this rut of certainty yeah. to where I just kind of stopped asking the questions and it made me really lazy. And I was just kind of leaning back on something I thought about 14 years ago or or 20 years ago, and I wasn't really actively thinking or grappling with it in real time. And now that's the only experience I'm having of this is in real time. And I think that's uh, to me, has been has been worthwhile. Well, and amen. So that's, yeah.
0: yeah, amen to that. Certainty often stunts our growth. And before I let you go, I have to clear up one thing. I heard, yeah. I don't know if this is true, I have heard through the Twitter grapevine that you are a fan of Emo's Pizza. Can you oh, tell boy. me if this is uh, true? Because... You know, we're in St. Louis, the St. Louis show. I'm a St. Louis guy. I argue all the time with people that emos is great and people come in and say, you know, it's bad, it's cracker with some cheese on it. I don't agree yeah. with any of this. I think it's the best thing in the world. Can you give me your
2: opinion? I would love to give you. I would love to give you my opinion. Um so I will just I will start by saying I I realize um, I don't, I'm not trying to be provocative here. I know that Emo's pizza is, is a controversial subject. I know that yeah. it is, especially for, for St. Louis. And right. And, um, and so I can only really give you my opinion here. That's all I, I know. That they use, I know that they use some kind of extremely inorganic cheese, Delicious, apparently.
0: I think is what
2: yeah. you mean. <laughs> Delicious is, is another word for it. But um, Emo's pizza is my favorite pizza of all time. Uh, uh, I, I get a uh, pepperoni and bacon. Oh my gosh! Um, I make I make the decision of how much of it I'm going to eat based on the size that I order because I cannot leave a piece in the box. No, I have no self control when it comes to most pizza. This but and it is but like, but see all the things you said about that some people would frame as negative. I see and frame as positive. It's it's pizza. It's like pizza on a cracker. Right. It's like it's the thinnest, crispiest little square cut it's the best you get all the good it's stuff much. without the
0: carbs you don't get unnecessary here filler we go. of breading here we you know go. the other stuff is like bread with some stuff on it you get right to all the good stuff okay and well, to
2: be fair I, I will include this that for my friends that my my wife is uh is from near chicago for all my friends who who wanted who wanna who who's, i can i can already see the thought bubbles uh in your heads that what we're talking about and and I, and it makes me think of something like Giordano's, which is the, the big thick pie pizza. Here's the thing: I love Giordano's too, and for the same reason. What is it? It's the ratio of bread to filling. Yes. Because Giordano's is like a is like a pie crust full of pizza topping. Right. Now that's what I'm talking about. It's like there there are two sides of the same coin. But but Emo's pizza, I've often said on my deathbed, this is what I want my my last meal, like my death row meal emo's pizza dude is my well, favorite i think I, about it almost every day if
0: you ever come through st louis just know I, I will take you out to emo's pizza i feel connected on so many levels now our spiritual i feel like a lot of our spiritual journeys line you're my favorite christian non-christian that i know and now we have emos in common so next time you come Brother. through st louis we're going it's on me we'll get two three however many we need to fill up but uh derek thanks so much for joining Bro. me today
2: that was a pleasure. It's great to talk to you. I really appreciate it.
0: You can learn more about Derek or check out his music at derekweb.com That's D-E-R-E-K-W-E-B-B.com. So I hope you'll check that out. And it was awesome to talk with him today. Hey, thanks everyone for listening. It was great to have you. Do not forget to reach out to me. The F word at gatheringnow.org. You can email me, the, the F word at gatheringnow.org, or uh, check me out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just search Matt Miowski. I would love to hear from you. Uh, thanks so much, and I will see you next week.